If I come upon a waterfall, I hear it. I feel the, not the foam, but you know, like the water droplets yeah. off of the waterfall. And I, and I see, see the water glimmering and I reach in and I touch the cool water. Um, are these, are these things that I can trust? I'm perceiving these things, but do they actually exist outside of me? So, yeah. And some examples of like how this might play out is like, <clears throat> one is the dream argument. So in the dream argument, you see the waterfall, you reach out and touch it. But in reality, you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. And you can only have knowledge of the external world if you're sure you're not dreaming. The argument goes. You can't know that you're not dreaming, and therefore you can't have knowledge of the external world. Uh, another version of this is like Wait. the brain in a vat argument. Oh. Yeah, I'll just lay out the three oh, that I'm going okay. With. So the brain in a vat argument is like you're a brain in a vat, and scientists are like piping in these mental representations of the waterfall, even though... There is no waterfall and you're just in a vat somewhere. And the third one is the deceiving God argument where there's a God or a demon that can manipulate your perceptions and is embedding this um, representation in your mind, even though it doesn't actually exist. Yeah. yeah. So um, these are some of my favorite thought experiments uh, from college. This, so this was some of my you know original introductions into philosophy um and so you know you can think of them as arguments but i think a, a a classical way that they're thought of is like okay here here's an experiment that you get to do in your own mind uh that's why we call it a thought experiment so we just think of a scenario um what what if this were true? What if X, Y, Z were true? Would that make you doubt your perceptions? So these are three famous ways of um, causing you to think if it is possible um, that there could be the brain in the bat, this is the second one that you mentioned, that scientists have progressed to the point, and we don't, we're not aware of it, but they've progressed to the point of... Um, being able to just stimulate your brain just so, so you have that, those perceptions. Um, you, would you be able to tell the difference between that and what you're currently experiencing? Like this desk in front of me that I'm knocking on, <laughs> our dog, <laughs> sorry, when I knock to so the dog, the dog's very reactive to knocking. <laughs> and that I'm feeling with this desk, I'm feeling with my hands, this wood, could that be, like that experience, that perception be the same if someone were, you know, my brain was just in a vat of liquid and scientists were poking at my brain and simulating it just right. Um, and so, yeah, these, these thought experiments start to make us realize, can we be as certain as we are about what we see around us and what can make us more certain? So it allows us to have that jumping out jumping off point, that skepticism to think, okay, what reasoning can I come up with? Um, is there any reasoning that I can find at all that would justify me trusting my perceptions? So um, I think that just explaining, you know, the purpose. And, and I like thinking of these as experiments instead of arguments because they're, they're, they're a jumping off point um, to help us realize what some of our assumptions might be. Our assumption is that I can trust what I feel. I can trust what I see, what I taste. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the one, uh, the thing I like about the the dream thought experiment is it can be really compelling if you think about, um, I think many of us have the experience of when we're dreaming, we don't necessarily realize that we're dreaming until after the dream is over. Yeah. So you could mm-hmm. see that being true about, again, this microphone in front of me, this desk. It's not until later when I wake up that I'm like, oh, there was something off, you know? But yeah. I really, really, in the moment, it was vivid and felt real. Yeah. And I mean, the Matrix is a great example of the, the brain in the bed argument. Yes. <laughs> real. <laughs> we talked about that in college, too. We're like, if we're in the Matrix, yeah. we started many a paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So this should be a, a good, good refresher. But I mean... This is a really important uh, important topic because the quality and level of our access to the external world determines whether or not we can meaningfully reason about it and whether or not there are people who are right and wrong. Yeah. So, so skepticism, people who have deep skepticism have it for a range of reasons. One reason is it's an intellectual smokescreen to divorce reason and reality, uh, to not allow people to reason about certain things. So for example, like in the German counter enlightenment, skepticism was used to protect Christianity from, you know, the, um, whatever the probing of like enlightenment reason. Oh, can you delve, can you flush that out a little bit? I, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. So basically with that, it's like, if reason is internally consistent, but if the machinery of your mind is so biased as to divorce you from reality, all your reasoning about is mental constructs, you can't firmly say that God does or does not exist because you don't have like the traction you would need on reality itself mm. to make that argument. And, and okay, that, so that was used in support of don't don't worry about yeah. rationalizing or th- thinking rationally about God and Christianity. Yeah. It was, okay, so it was like a defense, like exactly. to support it. Exactly to say like you can't reason effectively about these things because you don't have access to the external world. I think some sometimes people that's still uh, something that goes around about religion. Absolutely, and many other topics. N- n- yeah, not saying that's like a bad thing. Because sometimes people are like, that's just what faith is. Yeah, but that's a different argument. You know, it's a different argument to say, you know, I don't know whether or not God exists, but I have faith that he does. And to say, your faculty of reason can't can't make any purchase on the ground of reality, and therefore you can't argue against God. That's two different things. Mm. And And I think it's much more adaptive to be honest about what you know and what you don't know and say, Hey, here's the leap of faith. Here's the, the chasm that I'm jumping over. You know, I guess, but those things can be combined. Cause you can say like, I can't possibly know enough to know for sure. If God exists. I mean, that's an argument that can be made. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But yeah, I also see what you're saying is they can also be separate, used separately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in other topics too, like in our current like time, like people use radical skepticism to kind of say like everybody has their own 
uh, subjective reality that's equally valid because none of us have purchase on the external world. Mm. So it's it's still a very relevant, very um, you know useful topic to like think about. It's not just this like esoteric thing about brains and bats. It's like you know. Yeah, I really like that you say that because I think that you make a good point about how that line of reasoning is still utilized in different contexts. Like, yeah, even all the phrase, not to say, yeah, well, yeah, I'll, I'll say it. <laughs> um, even the phrase, like, your truth, my truth. Exactly. That's the idea of, like, there, it, it kind of starts to imply there is no um, reality, and mm-hmm. it's just about, okay, this is what I've perceived, and this is what you've perceived, and they're equal in validity. Exactly. Um, and there's no third reality. And, and the only and, yeah. and like although I could see some people might be saying it more like this was my this was my emotional experience and this was your emotional experience but I think that's it would different. be more healthy yeah. if then you could say okay I acknowledge that you could still have experienced it this way even though like I came at it from a different angle yeah and that's a little different yeah yeah and like, like yeah it's subtle it's subtle though it, it, it is subtle and it's also about like the primacy of like subjective experience over like facts you know um I, I think at some point it comes down to like you know the, the external world may exist or it may not but like our ability to understand it is like you know shallow it's relatively inaccessible therefore all of our emotional experiences, all we can meaningfully talk about, and therefore, like, we have to respect everyone's interpretation of things. All right, so we wanted to introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Juliana. I am Ion's fiance, and I I majored in philosophy, not my master's. No, no, no. <laughs> but she did get her um, master's in software engineering. Yeah, but not philosophy. <laughs> so I'm Ion. You guys know me if, you, if you've listened to this podcast for some time. Um, you know, doom, but defining task of self-perfection, you know, trying to explore big questions and, um, yeah, lately I've been on a kick on the short podcast of, of digging into philosophical topics. And that's why I wanted to, to pull in Jewel, Juliana, because, you know, she really got me into this subject and it's been a really powerful subject and it's been, you know, it, it's had a lot more utility than I suspected just in thinking carefully and reasoning carefully about like you're starting from premises and reasoning to conclusions in a rigorous way. Um, and, and just seeking truth. So I'm really excited to like share this, this content. Um, and do you want to, yeah, yeah. Well, first I want to just quickly respond. I'm so excited that you feel like I helped get you into this. Yeah, um, you totally did. I think that's awesome. Super feel great about that. And um, yeah, to what you were saying about the reasoning, that's that's why I fell in love with this topic because uh, in college, I actually didn't want to take philosophy, um, but I, all the other classes were full. So, <laughs> so I was in philosophy 101 and... Um, I was determined by the end of the week during, you know, the period we could switch our classes, I'd switch into another class. But even the first week, I just fell in love with the idea of what are my assumptions? 
And can I examine those and what do I need to, what assumptions do I need to abandon because they have, there is no basis for them. Yeah. Um, and what can I actually support? So that's getting at your comment of, you know, arguments and, um, like what is a valid argument? What makes something valid? What's, you know, what are the, like, what are premises, which is essentially the points that you're using to, um, like basing your conclusion off of? And what types of conclusions follow from those premises? Maybe I'm getting a little too technical without no, actually explaining helpful. everything. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's understandable. Also, if you guys want to go like really deep on, well, you know, if you guys want a solid introductory technical understanding of this stuff, go on the short podcast because we've talked about it a little bit. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it definitely opened my brain and started to make me think about lots of other things in my life. That I was presented with, you know, does this conclusion that these people have actually follow from the, like, the evidence that they have, mm-hmm. you know? Is it necessarily true that this is the conclusion, or is there an ambiguity there? Are there things possible, but they're touting this as a definite conclusion based on these things? Right. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, so just things like that, and also learning how to, you know define my terms and, and things like that um, because then everyone's working from the same understanding because I think a lot of what's being done these days as well are just um, making kind of a broad statement and yeah. not really being specific and mm-hmm. that allows for more ambiguity which then allows like even broader conclusions to be made and just like just flowing very quickly from like an initial statement to a broad conclusion, conclusion yeah. um, without stopping to like really present rigorous reasoning. So I, it, it was, it started to be easier to notice that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, this is, if you're interested, um, but definitely keep listening. Uh, so we started talking so about one, one skeptics. Quick thing oh, go ahead. Yeah. So the example you mentioned of like starting from, um, you know, a premise and really quickly going to an unjustified broad conclusion, Mm -hmm. that's representative of like daily conversation and political speech. But let's say you have a scientific context where you do define your terms very carefully. Mm -hmm. Even there, there's a lack of and a need for philosophical reasoning Mm -hmm. because science furnishes premises, not conclusions. So science can tell us, for example the COVID infection rate, the fatality rate, uh, all these different things. It can't tell us how we value, you know, harm versus freedom. That's a philosophical question that has to be tackled on that level. And there's many, many things like this, you know, like on the abortion debate, like science can tell us, you know, um, science can tell us how a fetus develops. Science can tell us all sorts of stuff about, you know, when the fetus has a heartbeat, but the line where we consider this to be a person or not a person is a philosophical question. So I think in, in an era where people are very frequently like, trust the science, uh, I think it's valid to trust that the scientific machine can produce useful premises. Mm, give us more data, yeah. Yeah, but we need to reason about that data rigorously, rationally, using a philosophical approach. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think what you said is very well said. But it's not widely believed. Yeah, you know. Um, and yeah, I think that's true. 
And to what you were saying about like political arguments too, um, you start to realize when people are misrepresenting other people's arguments just so that they win, win their own side. You know, they minimize yeah, yeah. what the other people are saying mm-hmm. and make it purposefully ridiculous on its face rather yeah. than trying to actually um, engage with the real ideas of the other side. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. N- nuance is lost. I think that's part of it. You know, nuance is so important. 100%. Um, yeah, and f- philosophy and writing, you know, taking philosophical classes um, is nothing if not nuanced all over the place. You know, it's important to understand. That's why philosophy reading can be really dense because every little detail is important and needs yeah. to be specified Yeah, and thought about. And it can be counterintuitive, which makes it feel dense too, because like, you know, something that logically follows may not be what you intuitively like feel, you know what I mean? Um, so... You also have to make arguments for this, this follows this because of that, you know, that has to be spoken to in papers too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But I'm just saying like the actual logical implications of like a set of premises might not be what you, what you feel that they are. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, But yeah. So uh, jumping back into. Yeah. yeah. So circling back to um, skepticism, we talked about, and just to revisit, we talked about the different thought experiments the dream art the dream thought experience experiment brain and bat um deceiving god or deceiving demon demon. um and so there there are um a couple types of skeptics and i'm i'm sure that that there are more than this but the two um that i think are interesting to talk about are um, certainty skeptics and justification skeptics. Um, Certainty skeptics say you can't absolutely be certain that external world exists, but concede that it's reasonable to believe that it does. Yeah. I think that's a lot of the way ways that we, most people probably move through life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can think about these thought experiments and then go forward and say, Eh, it's it's reasonable enough to assume, despite that these thought experience, experiments make me doubt a little, it's reasonable enough to think, okay, the external world does exist, and it's not just a manipulation. I'm not in the matrix. Yeah. Um, and some people also conclude, to expand on that, that it's just practice, practical to assume that it does. Because, you know, if you are in these situations... There is no, in at least these thought experience, experiments, there isn't any level of control that you have to make it back to quote-unquote, well, not quote-unquote, but back to, like, actual reality where you can pr- trust your perceptions. Yeah. Um, so it's just practical to com- continue to move forward as though what you're perceiving is reality. That is the common uh, common approach to, like, these skeptical scenarios. Because everyone's heard some version of these yeah. skeptical scenarios. And most of the time, I feel like folks are like, yeah, I guess if we are in the Matrix, just keep living as yeah. we live. Just keep know? swimming, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so justification skeptics say that it is unreasonable for you to believe that the external world exists due to your absolute, uh, excuse me, due to your lack of absolute certainty. 
and their, their reasoning goes like this. Your beliefs about the external world are only justified if you have some justification for believing you're not a brain in a vat. You have no justification that you're not a brain in a vat. Therefore, your beliefs about the external world are not justified. So if you, if we kind of think about the structure of that argument, they're saying essentially if A, then B, A is true, therefore B is true. Yeah. So yeah. there's, mm-hmm. to like reiterate that, if your beliefs are only justified, yeah. if you have a justification that you're not a brain in a bat. Yeah. By the way, you don't have a justification that you're not a brain in a bat. There, that, therefore, this conclusion that you your beliefs are not justified about the external world yeah. is you know follows from that. Right. So that kind of this is like definitely a nice like broken way broken down way of looking at like um, how how someone might set up two premises and then their conclusion. Yeah. And yeah. if their premises are true, they would have to be true, and they would probably want to present evidence for yeah. those. Um, then. We can at least say the conclusion does seem to follow, assuming that the premises are true. Yeah. Yeah. And as you get into the responses for skepticism, you see how hard it is to, you know, argue against justification skepticism. Because what you have to do to, like, really beat the justification skeptic argument is you have to provide evidence that you're not a brain in a vat in some regard Mm. or, or directly address that. Um, the first like couple of responses we, we are going to go through are a little more semantic. Mm. And so they do well against like the certainty skeptic, but they kind of fail to directly address the question of, are you actually a brain in a bed? Yeah. So the first one is like the relevant alternatives theory. And basically what this is saying is the skeptic is misusing the word. No. Uh, if your boss, K-N-O-W. Asks you, Sorry. I just want to give that confidence. Context. Right. Right. If your boss asks you if you uh, know that a warehouse is empty, what they mean is like, has all the merchandise been removed? They're not asking you to tell them if like every atom has been removed and it's like a perfect vacuum. Um, So the skeptic is raising the standard of knowledge to say like, to know something, you have to rule out every possible alternative, no matter how outlandish it is. And... That's not how we like reason. That, that's not how we use the word no, and therefore the skeptic is, you know, being just sophistical and um, abusing our language. Can we flush that out a little bit? So basically, when you have a, a mental concept of the color red, for example, what makes this red about something? Well, what makes it about something, according to the causal theory of reference, is there is a certain wavelength of light that produces this mental impression of the color red. Therefore, the impression of the color red is is related to and is 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 a referent towards um, this set wavelength of light. So, in the case of brains and vats, like the idea is like if you've been a brain in a vat forever. <clears throat> you 
your idea that you are a brain in a vet could not have been caused by a real brain in a vet. So therefore, if you think that you're a brain in a vet, like for you to have those concepts, you would have had to have contact with the real world. That that's how the theory goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're bound to be wrong because you don't have a real idea of what a brain fat is. Yeah. 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 So you would have to be, you know, in the real world and know what a brain is and know what a vat is to entertain that that you know, hypothesis. I think um Something that the twin earth scenario that they discuss is is also a helpful example to think about. Uh, So I'll I'll go over that. Yeah, please. So the twin earth scenario. Twins as in twins. (laughs) Twin as in twins, like two two twin babies. Okay, moving on. Twin earth scenario. On earth, water is H2O. On twin earth... Water is X, Y, Z. If I say I want a cup of water on Earth, what am I referring to? If my twin says that on twin Earth, what are they referring to? My idea of water was quote-unquote caused by H2O. My twins was quote-unquote caused by X, Y, Z. Again, this is the causal theory of reference uh, that their ideas were, were caused by aspects of their reality that they have around them. And therefore are about those. Yeah. 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 Um, the twin earth scenario forces us to consider why, whether me and my twin are referring to different things. And if so, why? Um, so, yeah, I, I find this uncompelling because, I don't know, I part of it might be that I always envision the brain in the vat to be somebody who's walked around in the real world and then, I don't know, one day they had a terrible accident and their brain was kept for science or something. Yeah, yeah. And so they have real ideas formed in their brain and the the... You know, the scientists are just probing their brain, simulating it just right to, like, almost have, like, a dream-like effect. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. I'm just making this up, but this is the way I've no, always totally. thought of the theory yeah. um, or of the thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And thus almost stimulating um, ideas that were caused by things in the w- real world. So, in that sense, it doesn't answer that sort of brain in a vat scenario. No, it doesn't. And... Yeah. Even if it did, um, such as maybe, yeah, even if it did, and I gave them that, okay, it's a brain in a vat theory about uh, somebody who's never actually walked through the world and only ever been a brain in a vat. Yeah. I'd still, I'd still say that, you know... It's possible for you to say anything that you can possibly think of. It won't be exactly true because your thoughts are not caused by something in actual reality. So your theory is kind of wrong on its face. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about all the theories that we can't, we haven't thought of or articulated yet? 
it still might be that my perceptions are wrong. I can't per- trust my perceptions. So mm-hmm. we view these more of analogies instead of literals. Um, I don't have to literally be like skeptics aren't claiming that I'm literally a brain in the vat. They're more claiming that I could be a brain in the vat. I could be dreaming. I could be deceived by an evil demon deceiver. Yeah. We don't know. Right. Right. Um, we can't trust our perceptions. Yeah. We can't successfully claim I can trust what I see around me. Right. Um, and so in that, I don't necessarily think that, um, what are these people called again? Semantic externalists. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they've responded to that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It doesn't preclude the scenario where you're kidnapped and you have reference to the external world. It also doesn't preclude, like, like, okay, so here's an example that, tell me if this illustrates what you, some an example of what you might mean. Let's say you've always been a brain in a vet. But these scientists, like, they know what pattern of brain stimulation would evoke, you know, a perfectly accurate simulacrum of reality. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, what what is the... Um, Yes, technically, that's that's like a vir- you, you've experienced a virtual brain and you a virtual vet. You know what I mean? Like they aren't real brains and real vets, but if the if the pattern of brain stimulation is identical between seeing a virtual vet and a real vet, like is that meaningfully different enough to say you couldn't imagine that you're a brain in a vet? You know, like if I've only seen pictures of zebras, I've never seen a real zebra. Like it doesn't mean I can't picture a zebra in my head. That's a great you know? example. I like that one. Um, so ultimately uncompelling to at least me yeah yeah sounds like you as well yeah yeah i think so but i do think the causal theory of reference is um is helpful especially when people are like you know whatever trying to denigrate objective reality in general it's like understanding how beliefs are generated uh this causal theory of reference is compelling to me in in that sense of like when we picture whatever the color yellow a coffee mug a table what makes those concepts about reality is the fact that something in reality caused us to form these concepts well something is in what we think is reality that's fair and that's a perfect (laughs) segue to the next theory do you let you should introduce this one let's switch off yeah what's the next one on our list B-I-V-H is a bad theory, is the next bullet point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so with this, basically, um, what makes a good theory is being able to make meaningful predictions about the world. Oh, no. Sorry, I think this is a nice line here. I interrupted. Yeah, sure, go for it. You want to introduce it? Well, yeah, I'll just do a minor comment. Yeah, totally, totally. um, That I think makes this interesting. The brain in a vat theory should be a terrible theory, but philosophers have had a lot of trouble citing what's wrong with it. Um, Some say it's a bad theory because it lacks simplicity, but it's actually much simpler than an external reality. One brain, one vat versus all of reality. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And now I would love to hear what you say. I just... I just find that really interesting uh, comment to say, like, it's such a ridiculous theory. Why is it so difficult to prove wrong and find a a Mm. satisfying response to that, to the skeptic argument? Yeah, and the reason why I'm saying is, like, that dynamic, like, happens all the time. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like when you have a really committed flat earther, yes, there's good arguments, you know, like what? Like you can go to a high place and you can see the, you know, curvature of the earth and the angle at different things being visible at different heights. You can say, hey, here's a satellite and it's taking images and, you know, but there's so many absurd theories where it's like too obvious to refute, you know? Um, and the brain yeah. of that theory is similar to that where it's like, you know, this should be easy to refute. It's something that's so outlandish, but it's like actually hard to refute. Um, and, you know, one of the most effective paths to the refutation of it is what makes a quality theory. So basically, like I was saying earlier, like quality theories are able to make predictions about the external world and they're falsifiable. Uh, a falsifiable theory is one that makes strong predictions that can be confirmed or disconfirmed. So evidence has like a purchase on it. Like if, if, if you have evidence for a falsifiable theory, that evidence is either gonna say like it's true or false. If you have two theories and one piece of evidence that can support either theory, um, the one that is falsifiable preferentially gets the, the benefit and the drawback of that evidence. You know, so if we, if, if we see our regular reality and if, if, if it is the way it seems, that implies certain things, that makes certain predictions about what we experience, that it'll be coherent, generally consistent, uh, it'll generally fit together and make sense. The brain in a VAT theory says that that could be true, but also like anything can be true. Yeah. So that data point weighs much more strongly in the favor of the regular world theory because the regular world theory is falsifiable and therefore prone to confirmation as well as disconfirmation. Hmm, interesting. Um, hmm. And the flip side of that is falsifiable theories... Oh. Uh, never mind. Unfalsifiable. I read that wrong. Uh, Unfalsifiable. <laughs> <laughs> Unfalsifiable theories cannot be disconfirmed by evidence, but also cannot be supported by it. So that's kind of the flip side of what you're getting at. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. That yeah definitely makes me think about it's almost like unfair to put a falsifiable theory up against an unfalsifiable theory. Yeah, well, because unfalsifiable theory is, is like, a, a theory that can make no predictions is meaningless. That's basically what it comes down against, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, if I make a meaningless proposition, you know, it, 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 it need not be true or false because it's meaningless, you know? Whereas if I make a proposition that's specific and well-formed, mm-hmm. then it can be true or false. And therefore, evidence can confirm or disconfirm it. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Brain and VAT theory makes no predictions about your experience. You could have a coherent experience where, not, where things make sense, or you could have a confusing experience where nothing makes sense. Um, whereas the real-world theory makes tons of accurate predictions. So that's kind of getting at what you're saying about... A falsifiable, falsifiable theory can help you make predictions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it predicts that you should have a coherent experience where things roughly fit together and make sense. So, yeah. 
that's definitely an interesting way to think about it. I love it because it's a little more meta. It's like, okay, let's step back for a second. Let's not look at addressing Brayton and Avat specifically or the, as I like to think of it a little bit as analogies. Um, let's not address those directly. Let's think about, is it a good theory at all? What makes a good theory? And what makes it so difficult to disprove? Like what's the quality of this um, theory and thought experiment? that is tripping us up so much. So yeah. it's a really interesting line of inquiry. And that's what I like a lot about philosophy sometimes is it does take a little bit of, let's take a step back. Yeah. Let's look at the bigger picture. Yeah. That's very helpful, like just mental technique. Yeah. Yeah. And, and going through this stuff, like first of all, it's it's useful for all the reasons we said that like radical subjectivity is like a thing that has always been used in our intellectual tradition to justify and mask various things it's useful to be able to reason about that also going through this exercise just makes you a more rigorous and careful thinker you know and philosophy does that like it transforms the way you think and the way you approach problems um so yeah yeah i think that there was one more thing we had notes on but we decided to put it in a future episode indirect and direct realism oh yeah yeah so that's something yeah if i remember you want to do a little more reading on yeah we we could we could do that in a future episode um that's that's an important topic but so something to look forward to agree agree and by the way uh sorry this episode's a week late uh the noise issues were just completely tortured unacceptable and (laughs) yeah tortured it was like wrestling with it all week and um so we re-recorded the second half of this episode for you guys and um jules was very very kind to take like two weekends to help me out with this topic and well thank you for making such a lovely outline that was very helpful for sure thank you for being a a semi-pro philosopher (laughs) it pays a lot (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) There's this guy on Twitter who was like a, a former philosophy professor and he's always talking about how he like lives under a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> my friend from college, he would always joke um, about my philosophy major. He's like, all you have to really learn is how to say, do you want fries with that? Because <laughs> implying that I was unemployable. And I was like, very funny, <laughs> but I have no idea what job I'm doing. <laughs> You know, I, I actually heard that the most common major for CEOs is philosophy. Yeah, that's a cool statistic. And yeah. um, actually, a lot of people who are in philosophy end up becoming lawyers. So yeah. I'd say that's that's definitely probably the clearest line of sight. So if you are interested in philosophy, don't feel like you shouldn't study it because it's not clear how applicable it is. It's very apl- apl- applicable, definitely for... Um, learning how to reason that's extraordinarily helpful in life and in work yeah and then also you become a great writer because you have to write so many papers that are well supported so that honestly is is something that i'll take with me everywhere i go yeah and i mean you can always double major you know like learning how to think is very fundamental and like everyone says college teaches you how to think it really does depend on what you're studying. 
Yeah, there, there are some things that could really benefit. Because philosophy isn't like, oh, good, I learned about what all these old philosophers said. Exactly. It's, it's, oh, I learned how to think, I learned how to write, I learned how to analyze people's arguments. Yeah, carefully, Be- methodically, yeah. rigorously. And that was like, I just felt so empowered by my philosophy degree because my my papers and my tests weren't about what people said. It's like whether what people said was... Is it a good argument? Why? How can it be improved? What are the weak points? Yeah. Um, things like that. So it really empowered me to take everything into my own hands. Yeah. Instead of just regurgitating what I read. Because that wasn't enough. Totally. Totally. So, yeah. It's it's a great topic of study. Agree. And uh, next week, we'll be talking about Gates of Fire, which is about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, Spartans... You know, 300 Spartans against, whatever, 2 million Persians. Uh, and it's going to be a lot about, like, Spartan culture and uh, training methods and stuff like that. Uh, and the week after, we'll probably do Peter Singer's Life You Can Save, which is a really interesting um, utilitarian argument for a certain type of philanthropy, which I think will be really cool. Follow us at rdmr underscore io on Twitter. And goodbye. Woo! Woo! <laughs>